0: So, good evening. It's a gentle time when uh, the light softens and the night begins to creep in. I always feel like there's a threshold here of something that opens up um, at around sundown dusk. The American uh, woman poet Laura Riding has a small book which is letters that she wrote to, a, you know, the daughter of a friend. I think a young child that she loved very much, and she says in most of them, um, "I wish that you would dedicate some time to getting to know yourself." I know that there's a lot of pressure on everyone growing up to learn and become and, you know, achieve, but really getting to know yourself. And I feel in that spirit the teachings are also offered that as we get to know ourselves and see ourselves more clearly, that the beautiful heart of humanity, the compassionate wisdom that is our birthright comes to light ever more and more. And that even as we are here in the practice enduring and seeing difficult and unattractive aspects of ourselves. I'll come around to describing a little bit the holding, the notion or the attitude that we're trying to see these things for the purpose of letting go, of learning, of developing compassion, of seeing clearly, of not reenacting internal patterns of self-violence or outer violence, But that self-knowing and self-knowing through this kind of trained awareness will reveal um, these things over time as the habit of a lifetime. And where we begin is as a human animal with this funny organism and this funny brain that has, you know, the reptile brain, the one that's in charge of keeping our hearts beating and um, having us bite people who are threats to us or jump out of the way of cars or those things. And then the mammalian brain, the one that is bonds and uh, takes on patterns of emotions and learns from other people and feels affect, um, the heart, kind of the heart brain. And then the neocortex, this kind of rational brain that um, thinks it's the boss but also has a lot of clarity and a lot of intention associated with it and the one that allows us to kind of see ourselves as if in a mirror that can um, discern patterns in our behavior and um, to some extent um, have some clarity and responsibility that is not just to live in the conditioning all the time. And I wouldn't say that all my anatomization of the brain is highly technical. It's just kind of a rough layer beginner's guide to that. I grew up in Latin America and I spent quite a bit of time in rural environments on dirt roads and um, that infuses my sensibility quite a bit of having been living in another culture and part of a you know large Western commercial enterprise namely the oil company that my father worked for and to see that there were real disparities of wealth of privilege ability social position and stuff like that it really um, touched my heart and is a part of how i teach today Um, part of what i saw there this is just a more homely illustration that we spent a lot of time driving along dirt roads and often there would be animals on those roads and I remember a lot of times, if many of you may have had this experience, and when you encounter an unfenced herd of cows that are in front of your car and they see the car coming, what they do is they run away along the road straight ahead of the car, but they're not able to really go that fast. And pretty soon they get tired, and when they get tired of running, they go, like, Oh, and then they go off to the side of the road, which they could have done in the beginning, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but what they see is the threat and they start running away from it directly along the clearest route which actually remains the most dangerous thing that they could be doing you know <laughs> now normally the driver doesn't want to hit them and they slow down and stuff but it was a you know it's sort of a poking fun example of how it's often our direct response may not be the thing that is actually the most skillful so what we're training here is um maybe not directly to you know whatever's in front of us and run away from whatever feels threatening but to spend a little time with the experiences that we're having in order to investigate and repattern our response to what's going on. If we just were to continue let's say um, to grow through the arc of our life from a child to an adult to an old person and dying person a certain amount of wisdom just will often tend to come along with that. And even today hearing some of the elders in the groups uh, with a deeper perspective on life that it was kind of a a wisdom energy that's there as people age and learn and soften and mellow and don't feel like they have to get involved in every fight and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and there are also certain ways in which sometimes as we get older, if we don't have kind of the right interventions, we can also get tighter and tighter and more and more afraid. So we're either lucky in the things that we encounter or not. So, and I think we're all pretty lucky to stumble upon this for whatever reasons we all came here to try this. Because I think, um, I have a belief through my own experience that it's a great enhancement to the experience of being alive. And in part what it does is it stops the inertia of many of our habits of mind and our habitual perceptions and reactions. And a new element comes in, which is this practice of attention, for which we've created a container that may feel somewhat artificial, but even in in its artificiality, it bumps us out of our habitual patterns. We've also really toned down the amount of inputs so that our mind can kind of be calm and deal with certain, like, small numbers of incoming pieces of information and then we get a chance to see very often how much proliferation can occur around one thing Um, it's a kind of magnification of habits and today the second day of the retreat is often like the crazy day where you know you've sat there watching your mind do the same thing over and over and feel like really stuck in it and it's like completely overblown and yet here it comes again and you buy into it every time you know there's this there's this funny joke i don't know or maybe not that funny but it's like What's that? It's like, I don't know, but there it comes again. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Arr you know, <laughs> like I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna bite that hook, I'm gonna go down that chute, I'm gonna tell myself that story yet again, and relive all those emotions and maybe come out spat out in the same place. We get a chance to see how similar to the way the earth keeps spinning and going around in its orbit, there's an inertia in our mind that kind of dredges up things from the past or repeatedly takes anxiety about the future as an object and goes there and starts having the conversations and things like that and gets infused with a lot of feeling. But with the practice, a new kind of element comes in and it often will create a type of chaos in our mind that we don't understand. Like, why are we doing this? But what we're starting to see is that we kind of are making different choices with how we put our attention. And this ability to keep making choices about where we put our attention and how we attend to things, it can be of enormous impact. We see that in our life, the choices that we make have inflected our life very much. And sometimes we don't get to always make choices in the perfect field of choices. Like, We don't always get to follow the priorities that we thought we wanted or sometimes other people's needs seem to impinge upon our freedom and things like that and yet within the field of other people and circumstances and limitation there's always room to make some kinds of choices and very often the choices are in how we relate to what's going on so we're more working on that here It may seem as if we're supposed to kind of sit there like an automaton or as someone said in the Q&A and not kind of do anything about anything and that's not really the case. It's just that we're trying to work in a substratum of our consciousness that's not often accessible which is the one, you know, when you're kind of frozen in this pattern of sitting and walking and eating what's put in front of you and doing this one job and extremely simple, not making so many choices kind of life so that you can observe and inflect how you relate to the structure of what's going on. And it's almost inherently faulty because um, it's not our real life. So if we could do this in our real life, it might be even better. But here sometimes we can see that, um, you know, we really react to certain kinds of things, like to people being noisy or to ourself making a wrong decision or Um, things that people say in the hall or people getting each other wrong or you know the kind of the small amount of things can also give us a sense of um, patterns of the way that we are so sometimes how we feel about stuff in the retreat is very much related to the things that to the ways that we respond at home that's a kind of psychoanalytic axiom you know like um you know, if you're always early or late to your session and stuff, they always explore right in there. So how you bump into the frameworks or the events in the retreat can often be very interesting in terms of um, our life. But I wouldn't like to send you on a big um, cognitive exploration of that just to make a hint at it. But people today in the groups were saying, you know, like I do uh, have a strong tendency to ruminate over the past or I'm a planner, I have anxiety about the future and if I don't feel like things are settled in the future, in my outer life or something, then that gets to me. So we can kind of see sometimes in a very simple way what our habits are. But these things, these habit patterns, are often precisely what obscure the deeper nature of self-knowing and the deeper nature of reality. As Alex was saying yesterday, that we tend to move so quickly in life that we just kind of see the outlines of things and we don't get to sink into... Understanding, you know, sometimes what can seem like the subatomic nature of change that we see with tiny particles of like tingling in our foot or the real alternation in this sort of vacuum chamber of all the different states of mind that you can go through in one day. And even watching yourself say, Oh wow, now I've got it. Now there's some clarity. You know, I woke up feeling pretty good. You know, I don't have the hangover from all my news addiction and my mind just feels kind of bright and ready for the day. And then kind of by 10 o'clock, it's like, this is a mistake, (laughs) you know, like, I hate this, the person next to me, you know, is ooh, or I love them, or whatever it might be, I want to go home, you know, and your mind is completely absorbed and making a reality out of that, like, that seems to define everything, Um, but then it's only temporary, and it often will take this repeated observation before you stop buying into, you know, this is true for all time, that piece of our mind. And look into the deeper realities and what it does for us is analogous to um, like Alex was saying or like a kind of scientific discovery we were speaking at lunch with Joseph Goldstein who's going to one of the founders here and you know obviously one of the more famous Buddhist teachers in the country and he's going to um, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center tomorrow to have a dialogue with an African-American dharma teacher about uh, dharma and racism and that kind of thing and how dharma practice can be useful in dismantling the inner and outer structures that create suffering in our world. So one of the things that we were talking about is um, scientifically there is no basis for race. There's no such thing as race if we look at our genetic variations, we're all big mongrels and mixes and maybe we have more of one thing than another, but often the variation within one group of people that's kind of isolated into the box called a race, the differences between the people in that group might be greater than the difference that one person in that group has from a person who's called another kind of race. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just that there's a huge amount of variety and what comes out in terms of attributes or looks or culture, or everything. It's just so much more fantastically diverse than that category can um, ever encompass. The category is unreal. It's not a real thing. It's been uh, the American Anthropological Association at least 10 years ago, said that it's not gonna be used as a term anymore because it doesn't point to anything. There's such a thing as culture. There can be such a thing as ethnicity and that kind of thing, but it's it's not a real term. And nonetheless, look at the impact that it has in our world. It kills people. It makes some people richer and some people poorer. It puts some people in a position of vulnerability to all kinds of attacks, which has an impact on how, you know, those people grow and feel and love and stuff. And it's just a tremendously difficult area in our culture, in our world now. Let's say race in our society, but also, you know, who was born here or who came here um, right now, being, um, ooh, I'm just getting this horrible shiver about that. I mean, just all those things that are made on top of things that aren't even real. It's analogous to the way our mind builds concepts out of experiences, and they're not always really correlated to the experiences. They're often like some kind of fantastic creation. Um, one of the main ones being, I suck. You know, because I made a terrible remark to someone and maybe the feeling of I suck is easier for some groups of people than other groups of people because from the outside that information has been coming at them. And so it's much harder to not start buying into it just because of how our society works. Um, as a female, I certainly know that I've had things to work on um, including things to take responsibility for, but also things to see that don't belong to me, that don't apply to me, that may not necessarily be true. I'd say as a person who was born in a female-looking body, because um, a lot of things about me don't see or feel female either. There's a big range in um, how I experience myself, and a lot of it is not very gendered on the internal side. I don't feel... Gendered. I feel treated as gendered, but I don't always have that kind of orientation to myself. So one of my favorite stories is um, I had an old Tibetan Lama Yoshul Ken, who you probably know, and they have a custom of um, not eating with their students. Um, it's a traditional Tibetan thing, and it may have different purposes, but anyway, um, this teacher would eat with his wife in their bedroom, And one time I had a message to give to him or them. So I opened the door while they were eating and she she was sitting on the floor eating and he was sitting on the bed. So later on I spoke to him and I said, you know, I didn't really like seeing your wife sitting on the floor and you sitting on the bed. Like, what's that about? Like, is that because you think you're a man and is better than her or something? And then he made this really rude gesture and he said, what about your mind? Does it have a one of these or does it have a one of these? You know, it was kind of like when Howie said that thing about if there's no past and no future, where's your suffering? For a minute I was completely flabbergasted. No, my mind doesn't have any gender. So I was kind of like, oh, okay. And then I shut the door and I left and I said, but why are you still sitting on the bed? (laughs) You know, like, it's kind of both and. Um, I never got that answer from him. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, we've all kind of absorbed numerous um, false and deluded beliefs through our life. Some of them come to us through family patterns, you know, of how we should be, or what is it someone was saying in one of the meetings today, and I hope that people who find themselves quoted by me don't end up feeling um, badly about it because I didn't ask your permission, but to say that to feel like looking at some of the deeper stories that we absorb, like who we should be or what we should achieve in our life, that it can be liberating to actually go deep with that stuff about what we were supposed to do with ourselves and have a little bit of the spirit of Laura writing to say that part of what we sort of get to deserve is just to know ourselves, to be okay, before we do anything, to have proved that. Can we set that as a baseline Um, of kind of humanity. Can we live in ourselves a value that we would like to have for all human beings? That we're equal, doesn't matter where we were born or what kind of body we have or income or circumstances. Do we really live that in ourselves? And I would say myself, no, I don't live that and I'm working to. I'm trying to see as deeply as I can in order to not be pulled into all those various narratives with the directions that they point. So it can seem very depressing that probably every person in this room has absorbed some false beliefs that are very damaging and harmful to yourself and other people, you know. I mean, just to admit it, we have um, our orientation to kindness here to be able to confess this in a way. Yet the fact that we learned it, Means that we can unlearn it because it was built and put together and we sort of took it in unknowingly. But the more aware we become, the more we can dismantle it because it is a construction. So anything that is a construction can be deconstructed. It may take work, it may take time, it may take vision, and it may take learning a different story about life from this kind of teaching or from, you know, the growing wisdom of humanity about what's right. And it may mean choosing a kind of story or making a choice or taking a stand about how we wish to live and how we want to be, but it can be done. So it's hopeful that it has no inherent basis in our physical reality. And In fact, if you look really closely at physical reality, it supports the Buddhist teaching, um, which I'll get around to, the teaching of not-self So the oppression of ourselves and one another through the habits of the way our mind works is a terrible thing but it can also be unlearned and dismantled and that's what we're doing it doing here and the best and maybe I would say the only way now of unlearning it and dismantling it is doing it in real time the way we're doing. That's how it works. That's how it gets undone. But sometimes it takes turning the same corner again and again until you see that you've turned that corner again and you start to feel like the heaviness of the contraction in your heart and it's like, oh wow, this is what it feels like when I'm thinking I'm unworthy and I believe it. And it's like, but seeing that I believe it isn't the same as it's being true. So when you start to have that clear mind that can see that I believe it, then you have the choice to kind of opt out Of course, sometimes those opt-out clauses are hidden in the various behind of the website, as you've noticed, maybe on working online, so you have to kind of sometimes click through a lot of different pages before you find the one where you can do that. (laughs) So Buddhist ethics are based on this kind of constructive idea that by our choices we make ourselves, and by our choices we can also unmake ourselves. We make internal choices in how we use our attention, and we make external choices in how we act and what we consume and all those things. So seeing that our mind reacts in a habitual way, like the cow, kind of gives us an option to, like, steer ourselves off the road before we've exhausted ourselves and running away from the car, let's say, something like that. And sometimes, let's say, um, that repetitive cycle of beating ourselves up, like remembering something that we did that maybe wasn't the best and how much it comes back over and over and over and we just plague ourselves for that. It's kind of like the same thing. It's kind of like as if some part of us believes that by rehearsing the shame and the blame we're somehow going to eradicate or remember or undo what has happened. It doesn't work. I mean, I don't know. Has any of you come to the end of that one? (laughs) Who is it? Gloria Tarania Ambrosia likes to say, how's that working for you? (laughs) Is it possible that it doesn't make us happier beyond a certain point to acknowledge that maybe there's been some thing that we might have done that wasn't the best? A lot of times it's exaggerated. A lot of times it's just one comment. A lot of times it might be doing something that is not habitual from your family background, like standing up for yourself or saying no to something, you know, and then afterwards your your ancestors all land on you for being a bad kind of female or something, or men who admit vulnerability can probably come through the some of the same cycles who say they don't know what to do or something like that. So we have to be able to look at those cycles and start to de-imprint them. Like sometimes it's just opting out of it through I will use, with things that feel repetitive or embedded, I'll use um, the work of Byron Katie, who has these questions that you ask yourself. You say, how does it, you know, is it true, you say, is it true that I'm like the worst person on the planet? Um, And I'm not saying it from a place of believing it, but I have believed it. I have subtly believed in not being a good person for a long time. So when I started to feel more like a good person, it was a big relief. Um... And that just sort of happens slowly. But sometimes if I'm really stuck in one of those where it feels really tight, I'll say, well, is it true? And my mind will say, yes, it's true. And is it really true? And it's like, well, it probably isn't, but it feels really true. And then it's like, how does it feel when you're holding on to that belief so tightly? What does it feel like? It's like, it feels horrible. Well, what would it be like if you didn't need to believe that? Who would you be? And that, for me, will often open up a moment of like, you know what? Maybe it's not necessary. Maybe it's not necessary to be with us. What would it be like if you didn't have to believe this about yourself? You know, because if you're somehow in relationship with the belief itself, it has this really insidious power where it does it's not true, but it feels true because of conditioning very often. So there's a Brazilian playwright named Augusto Boal, who some of you may have heard of, I don't know. I'm, just, I'm sure that often when I introduce things, I'm not even the most knowledgeable person about this. But one of the things he does is he offers uh, theater exercises. It's called the theater of the oppressed and people act out things in order to unlearn them. So there's one exercise where it's done with two people and they sort of oppress each other. Like one person holds their hand in front of the other person's face and person, the person who's the face has to follow the hand no matter where the hand goes like that. You know, and feeling sort of that power over and what it feels like for both parties. And then they reverse it and then they undo it in various ways. You go along or you don't go along and you actually get this kind of body-mind experience of what it brings up, um, both to be victorious and to let yourself go under again. Through the body, speech and mind exercises with the intention of understanding, not with the intention of actually oppressing So in a way, it's not really that different from what we do here, only we do it all silently. Like, as a teacher, or maybe even as a student, you might imagine sometimes what's going on in everybody's mind in here. And it's quite wild, like the silence, and then the ideas of where everyone is. And like, first, there's where all of you came from, and the diverse environments and pathways that you came here. But what is going on in each person's mind? Although we hear a lot of it in the groups, we also know there's a lot that we don't hear. But... Sometimes it's interesting just to have a sense of all the activity, all the love, all the struggle that's going on in this room and how, um, you know, engrossing it kind of is for each of us and how we're working with it through our awareness. It's quite a beautiful, compassionate exercise. One of the things that I think probably typically goes on is a game that is something that Boal has as a game and he does it interactively and what we would do is Everyone in the room here, we would all mill around in this room. And in the beginning of the game, you just speak in numbers. So you go 18, 22, but you go up to someone and tell them how great they are by saying, like, you put this emotion of, like, 18, (laughs) 34, (laughs) 70, you know, like, as if you're looking at them and telling them, like, they are the most amazing person. And then you turn it around and you start going down in numbers and down in estimates you're kind of like four you know (laughs) one like that and then you go back up to leave everyone in a better place (laughs) you know but the idea is to experience the mind that evaluates and also the mind that receives evaluation and to start to see the emptiness of that and to see the reactivity because obviously as you get into the game you'll get kind of into it like you will feel the evaluativeness of it and it'll start to probably hook on to things inside yourself and bring them up so in a sense we're doing the same thing that's just inside out and this is outside in or something like that where we get to see this evaluation but the way the teaching is offered it sounds like it's a technique but it's really also an attitude where you just see it and the awareness this non-judging awareness that doesn't get carried away just sees it And that's a little bit like what the theater exercise is meant to do. There's a holding space, there's a holding attitude for seeing where our mind goes. So, when we're really like in bliss, it's a beautiful thing. And often um, I would recommend that when you feel those instances of bliss or clarity or tranquility or something that's a result of your practice, that you actually notice those. It's kind of for me, you like let your awareness go sideways to feel it. You don't just keep going through it and keep doing your exercises. You know, you sort of like, hey, here's some bliss. What does bliss feel like? But you don't have to make it into like, wow, I am so cool right now. I'm so much better than that nasty person who came here three days ago and is going to go back to being that nasty person who tells my husband that he really spills a lot of crumbs on the tablecloth or whatever. <laughs> you know, He'll still be spilling them when I get home. I know that is true. And I might be tempted to say something, but that doesn't mean that I'm a good better a person now, it just means that there is an experience available to me in which I might be able to look at crumbs on the tablecloth and just see crumbs, not the history of oppression between male and female. <laughs> 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 so our mind will often be giving us like, you know, plus and minus ratings And it doesn't, sometimes it feels really good when we're giving ourselves that plus rating and sometimes it doesn't feel really good when we're giving ourselves the minus 10,000 rating or we're giving the meditation practice a rating of being useless or torture or something like that or um, adding a disease, a mortal disease onto certain sensations in our mind and those kinds of things. Um, Is it possible to really have the attitude that meditation isn't really about that? That when we start to, make those extra comments, that that's something also to be seen and not sort of established. This is kind of what we call the process of selfing. It's the process of kind of locking in on a concept. And when we speak about relinquishment and letting go, it's really letting go of that, of that habit of the mind that wants to solidify things. And kind of it tries to stabilize itself around experiences in that way. But by stabilizing itself, it creates an instability, really. It creates suffering. So I was um, practicing what I thought was virtuous conduct a few weeks ago. I was trying to be like looking into what would it be like to add a little bit more of what I call ethical virtue or beauty or gentleness to the world like through the way that I behave. So I was curating my Facebook feed and I moved it from top stories to most recent which I always get sick of them putting certain people on the top and only hear from certain people all the time and you know family members go to the bottom. I don't know who writes those algorithms or why they think that the person in California who really posts a lot should be the person I always... Anyway, so I'm doing that. (laughs) And up comes this CBS News report about a murder that happened recently in Boston. And some of you may have read the paper there where there was a former security guard who who murdered, violently murdered two doctors in a kind of Tony building. So all the comments down below, which I'm going to say that we're trying to get out of the mode where we feel like we have to add a comment to everything like that's kind of part of meditation practice but our world invites us to always make comments and have an impact and get responded to that way so a lot of the comments were really bloodthirsty they were saying you know what is this guy doing in a hospital bed like his throat should be slit I'll go in there and do it myself and stuff you know really rude horrible (laughs) trolling kind of stuff and, you know, he, that person must be an illegal immigrant and et cetera. You know, you know the ugliness that can be there and it's, I was glad it wasn't normally in my feed so I thought, I am going to write something reflecting my values. So I wrote, um, you know, I'm very glad that we have a justice system and I think that's better than going and murdering him in the hospital and um, your comments are not adding anything good to my day. <laughs> I wrote... <laughs> and I put it on. <laughs> and you know what happened? It, there was a little note at the bottom saying, "This, you know, this comment thread is curated. And when I read this comment thread is curated, I thought that it would be curated in a certain way to keep it civilized. But they didn't put my comment in the list. <laughs> and I'd been there bracing myself for the trolls to pile on me. And actually, the editor was like, ah, that's not interesting. Some goody-goody posting on here. It's not exciting. We're just going to let the other people go at it. I don't know, I guess. But it does seem like that's sort of something that goes on in our world that's creating habit patterns as we, you know, that we um, can deplore or observe. Um, but I think there's also this way that maybe we've seen our own minds feeding on certain kinds of energies that are not really that healthy for us too, like really getting caught up and you know as we see people making these violent comments. We know it's not good. we know that it may lead to terrible activities um against innocent people very often, but I think we can also sometimes see that what's called this like news feed and stuff that there's sometimes a craving for activation in oneself that is, let's not make a moral equivalent out of it um, to say that we're just as bad and we should humiliate ourselves and say that it's bad that we have difficult patterns in our own minds, but to say that some of this kind of like wanting to know what's going on and getting into this kind of culture of outrage and that stuff, it's um, maybe not that healthy for our whole overall system of uh, culture And I don't think it means that you should give everyone a voice. um, But I think um, to be able to speak from a place of love or tranquility or integrity or something like that is better um, than just constant deploring or labeling people as something and then being mad at the label. I learned that new acronym from that feed, which is a POS. And some of you may know what that is, but (laughs) I didn't realize what it was. I had to look it up. If you don't know what it is, I'm not going to tell you, because you really shouldn't know. <laughs> but the labels that we put on everything are kind of, they are necessarily a generalization, like concepts are almost always a generalization or a representation. And it's also interesting to watch the way our mind gets caught up in internally in concepts and rep its own internal representational process. It's kind of like a Mobius strip. You'll be going along on one side of it and all of a sudden you're on the other side and your mind is saying like, wow, I'm having a great meditation right now. But that's not the great meditation. You know, there's always this thing that feels like it needs to comment and tell you what's going on. Like a lot of times I end up getting sucked into that line of chatter and carried away with that. It starts off as this little mumbling thing and, you know, and then pretty soon it just becomes like this whole thing. And I think I'm still meditating, but I'm not kind of like flipped over to the other side of it and don't see that it's a concept, conceptual activity. So I feel like when I was writing this talk, it kind of made me feel a little shaky that I was bringing in some stuff into our very nice, sweet bubble here. So I just want to say that I want to name these forces in us, not to agitate you, which I hope that um, won't happen too much, but sometimes because um, naming something in a certain way um, calms it down. But also, I want to say that what this meditation is for, also, um, if we can dismantle our internal systems that oppress us, it will contribute to betterment in the way that we behave and perceive in the outer world. We'll see human beings more than we see labels, even if we see damaged and destructive human beings. We will have a greater likelihood of seeing human beings and not wishing harm upon anyone. We may wish for harmful behavior to stop, but we won't necessarily act out violently in that way internally. We can admit that there's an illness of view in our entire system and to whatever degree that we have internally been kind of colonized by those beliefs, we can start to take responsibility for taking them apart um, this way. So some of those are feel very personal, like one-on-one. Some of them feel things that happen in relationship, the way that we hurt ourselves and each other when other people are um, in interacting with us. And some of them feel, you know, community-based or systemic. So for that, in a way, we have these the outer Buddhist precepts that are really important. And it's important to remember that they're based in compassion and the wish to not cause harm, like to just to refrain sometimes. Like, I think that we've all had the ability to really want to make an angry comment or feel angry and say something that's not exactly the way we feel, like to know that maybe it's actually better not to say what we're thinking and feeling. So that's kind of like we hold this outer precept and we may go off and think more about or feel more about how we feel and wait until we can make a comment that will actually work out that the person can actually hear um, and change rather than react to the style in which you are trying to tell them the impact of their action on you or whatever that is so the outer precepts um, what I love about the buddhist precepts and I almost want to take away that word of buddhist it's like because they are about a lived experience of compassion and understanding that just as it hurts me to have someone steal my pen, I'm not going to steal someone else's pen, like I kind of know how that is. And I can also extend that I don't know everything and I'm willing to listen to what other people feel as I create my path through the world. It's not taking a code that came from somewhere else and just trying to apply it. You know, So it's not trying to... Um, put us ourselves on a grid it's a much more intimate type of morality or virtue and we can learn about it as we practice mindfulness of our feelings like how we feel in the presence of greed or hatred as it's acted out by us or other people or how we feel when our heart is more open or when we've been generous or when we contemplate what's good in us and that's actually recommended in buddhist practice to really think about the good that you've done in this world and to appreciate yourself for it it's not considered to be like making you think that you're better than someone else it's considered to make you remember your own value and incline your mind toward those good patterns rather than dwelling in the negativity that's so easy to form a habit around like somehow it seems like we you know that's been talked a lot about a lot in the scientific, sort of secular mindfulness world is the negativity bias that we have, and we have it about ourselves. So sometimes our mindfulness can, you know, to have these beautiful images of um, Kuan Yin in the back and the Buddha, and to remember that that's also an image of ourself inside, that we have virtue is a good thing. They're also, I like our precepts because they're not commandments, they're practices, and so we can refine them as we go. You know sometimes we might just apply them because we think it's a good thing, and sometimes we might learn that um the way we thought we should be doing it isn't subtle enough, or we need to pull back or sometimes we need to break uh, some kind of thing that seems like a rule in order to do something else and I know doctors do that; i mean they cause pain. I remember I have a friend who's a nurse, and he said when he had to practice giving shots to little infants, he cried. He said, like, I cried! And he almost started crying again when he was saying that he had to give the shots to the babies. It was so like beautiful. But that's has to be done. Like Sometimes you do have to hurt someone's feelings or body in order to go on. Like, not that you would do it because you want to hurt them, but because there's almost no way through this without something happening. So here we're restraining the outer kind of acting out of our body, speech, and mind. Unlike the theater exercise, we're not going around evaluating each other, thank God. You know, um, the introverts among us would be like horrified at playing those games. Some of you may, might think, well, it'd be a lot more fun than what we're doing. I don't know. But, <laughs> but I often think, how could we, a hundred of us, live together here without creating like even more problems if we were actually talking or just didn't have any kind of presets? So, but what happens when we restrain our outer acting out or our outer patterns of self soothing, like using the phone or trying to connect with someone when we feel a little bad inside or something like that, to, you know, we don't have that. So then our minds, you know, all this energy that would have normally been dissipated or taken care of by the way that we behave, like the, you know, some very legitimate forms of self soothing and some maybe just not so healthy. drinks and drugs for example for some people but we start to feel this internal pressure like has anyone felt that kind of internal pressure and heat of your mind being here like when you have to sit it's kind of (laughs) like and the intense craziness sometimes of where the mind just is really stuck and you want it to be doing something different and it is not doing it and it's so vivid that you can get so absorbed in it and here you are in this beautiful place having an absolutely horrible time you know Um, so for then the next piece that we need is the concentration piece or the, you know, this internal discipline of turning our attention to a different object, like sometimes taking ourselves out of that thing and at least touching on one breath or the advice that we often give to feel the emotion in the body, because that at least puts you in touch with something that is changing because the concept of yourself doesn't change. It just gets more rigid and stronger and permanent and bigger and forever I am like this, you know, so... You feel the breath and something in your mind notices that something is changing. Or you feel that the emotion is in your heart. And first of all, you get more connected to something that's real, not a concept. And second of all, you're kind of subtracting energy out of that karma-creating-recreation cycle, like the recycling place. So you have a vantage point from which there's a little bit more of a choice There's a little more of a perception of change. There's a little more of a perception of fluidity from that. And there's more integrity because the body and mind come back together. So Alex was saying in the Q&A that there's access to intuition. Like our mind is not just in our head. Our mind is through our whole body. And sometimes our body actually can provide a sense of like a deeper ground from which a more kind of healthy understanding can come than what we think we should believe about what we're experiencing. Then our body can say like, you know, I actually really like this or I actually really don't like this or I should do this like somehow it seems when our resources are together and the body and mind are together that better there's more information in the field and better outcomes appear from that but we're also inserting a choice point as we shift our attention so that's really important too we're maybe we're stuck in this mind cycle and we go back to the breath and as we do that we're learning how to move our attention so we start to experience that we have a choice so there have been numerous questions about why is this useful and how does this work and that's one thing and it, it let's say go to the breath that may not seem that it's ultimately leading the direction that we want which is like if we ruminate enough about this the answer will come to why i feel so traumatized when my family life was apparently decent or something like that why or where did it come from it's like why should I pay attention to my breath when I really want the answer from that? It can of, Your mind can often say that. It's like, but to know that there's a choice may actually be something that you didn't have in this family system in the first place. But also to know that you have a choice gives you some space within the rumination in which you're turning the same corners in the same maze, like the, run, the cow running ahead and re- jumping off the road again and again and again. You just keep going through the same thing and you don't come to that much that's new. So this allows the mind to sort of like refresh itself and change, like put itself in a different state, kind of a different state of the brain when the body and mind are together. It also lets us see that there's a different track along which we might go to inquire. So I was talking about how habits get made. Um, It's like a ski slope, you know, like where there's ice along certain tracks and you just go along those tracks. It takes a lot of effort to get out of your tracks And often if we come to a retreat with a kind of project mind, we're still somehow going along the same track. So it can sort of be work to bushwhack into the powder snow or something and make some new tracks. But that's kind of the type of exercise work that some of the concentration practice will do. The other thing that it does is it allows us to have a more neutral object or place of attention and when the attention can get steady the mind gets a little bit happier or it kind of lifts off the rocks a bit you know you start to feel that tranquility or clarity you know so it may be the breath or it may be just the effort to be present and stable like the stable attention that's kind of not blaming not evaluating but just being and seeing and having some kindness toward what it perceives as you apply it to something where you're not getting sucked in you apply it to something more neutral you also start to be able to see the process of change in the breath. So that's um, kind of creating an internal boundary in your experience um, with concentration. It's almost like internal um, practice of morality or ethics, like don't let your mind go into those neighborhoods if it's getting mugged every time, like why don't you stay on the lighted street for a little while, you know, something like that. And then, as our mind gets more stable and this coming together of resources and the attention deepens, then this wisdom has a chance to come up where um, our mind is kind of unmasked in a certain sense. Um, People have talked about just hearing the stories that the mind tells and not necessarily believing them all, like being able to see the mind as kind of just the mind is doing something. Maybe what it's doing right now is unfavorable, but I'm not, you know, completely invested in it. And that can happen right in the moment of watching something. And as I was saying before, you feel, this doesn't feel that good. And actually, oh, wow, it's my mind um, kind of playing that song again. I don't have to be there. And as you start to see it, just something your mind is doing, then there's this kind of lightness that comes in. You can almost laugh at yourself. And this environment, being simplified, provides opportunities to laugh at yourself. I must say, like for myself, I have this. I, I'm afraid that I'm going to tell you my secret, but I am going to tell you my secret. The lunch line in the middle is better because you have the choice between two tables, and it's much faster. And I don't know why all those people are waiting on the outer sides, for in such a long line. When if you go through the middle, it's almost like you get to go twice as fast, right? Hehe. <laughs> Like, so I see myself doing it and saying, like, hey, hey, I'm calculating how to get my lunch faster. (laughs) And it's like, it's so absurd. (laughs) And especially sort of this feeling of, like, when I used to have a lot of flyer miles and I'd be sitting in my chair and I'd be like, there's my bag is stowed, you know, and, like, how I feel compared to all those poor, sweaty people coming in and not having anywhere to put their bags and seeing, like, this kind of feels good, but it kind of doesn't feel that good, you know. So you can start to sort of see this stuff the one that wants to appropriate the pen or the one that even having heard Alex's story still would like to take a pen upstairs (laughs) you know (laughs) like like I don't care what he said like (laughs) this is this a really big deal it's not a big deal I kept the coffee filter from the staff dining room upstairs overnight and then people didn't have anything to do with their I mean I was in a hurry but I also didn't take the trouble to bring it back downstairs um and I Alex's story was ringing in my head the whole time (laughs) (laughs) But no, I'm too busy to take it downstairs and back down. (laughs) So it's kind of like the mind that can start to laugh at itself. Or um, I have this story here that might be a little bit long since I'm coming to the end of the talk, but um, here's this. When I was 19, my mother died and my days passed in a fog of depression. Reading Dante's Inferno for a class, I could sympathize with the phrase, abandon all hope. One afternoon while struggling with my music theory homework, I stood up from my desk and de- declared that I simply couldn't understand it. Yet, my friend said from the couch, I was confused. You can't understand it yet, she explained. Surely I could see that I'd learned a f- few things already in that class. I reluctantly agreed. So you're going to keep learning, you'll learn more. This advice helped me with not more than just homework. I began to apply it to my grief as well. I didn't need to stop being depressed. That was too much to ask. But I could allow that at some moment in the future I might experience some relief. Over the next few months I started adding yet to the end of sentences in my head. I don't want to laugh yet. I don't want to stop crying yet. I don't want to let go yet. One day I wouldn't think of my mother all the time. One day I would become so excited about something that I would forget to mourn. I would move on just not yet. So even that, even saying, you know, like, I may not be free yet, but I will be. And even just to let in that sense of possibility is pokes a hole in that um, habit pattern that believes that it's all determining and all encompassing. So this is what we mean by saying the mind is empty of a self. It doesn't mean that we don't have a relative identity or that our relative identity shouldn't be strong and healthy and really beautiful. But it's how do we relate to what's happening in our mind and how do we see it? Like um, The mind ultimately doesn't have any substance. I mean, it's the craziest thing. It sort of doesn't really exist and yet it has this tremendous impact. Like the concept of race that we said earlier, it's not based on anything, but... It also kills people, Well, our minds also kill us. A very depressed mind can kill the body, right? Um, It feels so solid and real. It's glued up in this way. And that glue is what we're talking about when we wanna say, learn how to let go or learn how to dissolve that. So there's a Zen quotation saying, um, let me see, I have to get this. Meditation is not, a pra- is not a matter of thinking or shutting out thoughts, but of being before thinking. Before thinking means to be prior to your experience, in the same way a mirror is prior to what it shows, even in the moment of showing it. We are not what we are aware of, we are the context of whatever arises. With practice, when feelings of other, utter desolation, fear, joy, pride, Happen, we can come to know that all of this is an activity of the body-mind and nothing more. It's not as if there is a mirror. It's not as if there's something there. But there's some quality in the knowing that makes it transparent to us. So it's as if it were in a mirror or as if our life were like a dream. So it doesn't need to be corrected in quite the same way. Like, say we're in a fit of anger and, you know, what our mind really wants is to be feeling more compassionate right now because it's painful to be angry or it's painful to feel helpless. But of course we want to be feeling more compassionate, but usually those kinds of internal commands also don't work, have you noticed that? <laughs> I want to be feeling something different from what I'm feeling right now. Well, that only makes adds to the misery. But if we can look directly at the feeling and sensation complex of being angry, it actually can begin to release, to let us go. And we start to see that it's just a feeling. It's just something that's happening right here, that's happening here. And now it sort of boils up. And even in the way that it boils up, it's not substantial. It just can feel that way. So it's like this wishing, dreaming, childlike being that we are um, has a kind of openness uh, inherent in us. And that's actually also a scientific truth. Like we feel these habits are so solid, but they're actually just repetitions. Um... So with this kind of subtle seeing as our heart and mind begin to open, there's a type of, I mean, you almost can feel like there's an energy in the openness. Like you might try practicing with just remembering to be open, like say open or whatever happens is a kind of of equal value. That's called the practice of purity in Tibetan Buddhism. Everything is the same. It's just a feeling. So if you see a, let's say you see a banana peel, a rotten banana peel on the floor in the kitchen that someone didn't clean up and you go outside and see a butterfly. It doesn't mean that you have to make them both be beautiful, but you're just seeing each one without the extra of saying, like, oh, wow, that's a really bad, nasty, awful banana peel, and who's supposed to be cleaning the kitchen floor anyway? You know, and it's rotten, and it reminds me of disgusting things. We have the ability to just see it and say unpleasant sight, maybe a not pleasing sight, maybe not helpful sight, maybe dangerous. Let me put this in the trash. Or a butterfly. It's beautiful. You know, the mind lifts. But each one is just an experience. It's just something happening and we can simplify and get a little more into that bareness. So from there, it's like we dismantle this thing inside ourselves that always wants to be supreme. The New Yorker has a cartoon that, where there's this funny little king sitting on a throne and saying like, <clears throat> I would like to be loved as a father. I would like to be feared as a tyrant revered for my wisdom and justice and i also want people to think i'm funny i mean we all have that internal (laughs) person in there but if we start to see this kind of dream like nature we can act in a way out of um, non-self or act from openness and that's a very different thing like that's a really different reality there's an energy in that openness that um, it can be a little bit unpredictable and loving and intuitive and taking a step like I remember I was walking up up a hill once in Nepal and there was this little kid who had obviously been sent with the family's last rupee to get an egg and it had dropped the egg and um, I had this feeling of like I'm this like white rich foreign tourist I'm not going to mess with this kid and their egg and my friend just stopped and asked what had happened and the kid was crying and he gave it to gave the kid a rupee and it went and bought some more. You know what I mean? It's just direct. It's just there with you and the other and just being there without all this extra stuff. Blaise Pascal said, reason's last step is recognizing that an infinity of things surpass it. So as I'll close with an example of acting from non-self, which is um, a story about the uh, Fukushima reactor which some of us may remember when that was melting down um, a few years ago and there was some a line of elderly workers waiting outside and being interviewed by a reporter and they were people who had worked front at the plant and retired and they were going and offering to take the place of the younger ones saying um, you know we don't have as long left to live and our generation put this reactor here and we supported it and Also, we're older and we're not that scared of dying. We don't feel the fear of losing our life. So, why don't we go in and replace the younger ones? So, as we see, like, the fear of death is one thing, death itself is something else. We can start to see through so many things here, um, through this practice. I'll close with another poem. from Tao Qian, 400 AD, um, a Chinese poet. So thank you to the um, Asian tradition in many ways. Once you're dead and gone, what's then? What then? Trust yourself to the mountain flank for it will take you in. So you can be dead and gone um, before that and trust the mountain flank, it will take you in. That's the nature of ourself that we're invited to know. So thank you for your kind attention. And if I said anything that um, upset you or feels really wrong, then please uh, forgive me and um, you don't have to carry it on. But if there is something I said that is really rough on your sensibility, you can let me know. I'd be happy to hear it. Thank you. Let's sit for just a minute.